You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Kasperson. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. Dr. Best came up with this idea. This is just amazing. This webinar is for you guys. Like, full disclosure, I already know all this stuff. (laughs) And I didn't know this stuff in training. I actually didn't know this stuff until about seven years after training, which if nobody's told you yet, beware of the seven-year itch, because whether it's your marriage or your career, like the seven years will happen and you'll have a, you'll, you'll need to have an awakening. And that happened to me. And I'll tell you that in my story. But um, point being, this is really for you guys, you peoples, And whether or not this is, you get any info from this, it truly will help us take care of patients better too. So I think in learning about what's good for you, your relationships, you're also going to be like, oh, these are some things I can take back to patients. So whether you're sexually active or not, whether you care about being sexually active or not, it'll still help a lot in taking care of our patients. Our patients don't think we do a good job with sexuality, in case anybody was wondering. They think we do a horrible job in discussing sexuality. And I think that's, you know, because we're just human like everybody else and sex makes us uncomfortable. But so point being, even if you have no interest in sex, you're never ever going to use any of this info, it will help you in taking care of patients because patients really need doctors who can handle this discussion. So without further ado, I'll show you my PowerPoints. But chat box, if you can change your name and be anonymous, if that makes everybody feel more comfortable, I will answer your questions as they come in. Because as interactive as this can be without me seeing your faces, the Q&A will make it a little more interactive. I'm drinking a huge bottle of Topo Chico from Costco. So we'll probably stop around 7.15, 7.20-ish to do a, a break, a stretch, a pee, whatever you need. So we'll do that too. And Jennifer, too, since you're the only one interacting, if you if you have like questions or you need me to clarify, whatever doesn't make sense, like chime in. It's interactive is, I think, fun. So my disclosures, I'm a speaker for Medtronic and Allergan. My hobby, my creativity is my podcast. And I'll tell you about that. The other disclosures is sex makes people feel awkward. And I will generalize. I tend to, you know, we all tend to accidentally be binary and accidentally assume and I never mean to do to, to exclude And the other caveat is our research tends to be binary also. But so I always like to tell people up front, this is an awkward topic. When it comes up and you feel awkward, welcome. This is where we all are. And I never mean to exclude. I I truly think this talk and sex in general is universal and applies to all people. I never want to think that it it doesn't. But if it's it's research on a specific gender or research on a specific relationship pairing, I'll, I'll point that out. So my rules of engagement, judgment-free zone, and then pay attention to your thoughts as they come up, right? This is super, like, if, if I start saying something and it makes you super, like, edgy or uncomfortable or I don't know, like, pay attention to your body and those sensations as they come up because it's really curious, like, what your body's going to tell you when you hear things you maybe have never heard before. And I hope to blow your mind. I hope to normalize sex for you. I hope to normalize the conversation. I hope to make you guys fascinated by this topic because I'm literally fascinated by this topic. It involves our religions, our society, our government, our relationships, our body image, our education, our history. Like literally, it's such a deep topic, sexuality, and how all these different pieces affect our sexuality that like the topic is amazingly fascinating to me. So hopefully I can make it at least slightly interesting to you. It's not as simple as like, just don't get pregnant 
and just don't get diseases, which is literally like if we got sex ed at all, that's really all we got. So I'm a urologist in a male-centric world, and women are complicated. This is what I was taught in residency. Just for anybody they want to know how old I am, I'm 11 years out of residency now. I'm in my very first job out of residency still, so it does happen. I moved to Bellingham because my chief resident moved to Bellingham. I trained in Colorado. And he kept calling, and he's like, we're busy. Can you come? Do you want to come? And I'm like, no. And I, like, talked to him a half a year later. He's like, we're busy. Do you want to come? And I'm like, no. I really like Denver. And my husband's like, why don't we just go live in the Pacific Northwest for two years and like have an adventure? And if we hate it, we'll leave. And I'm like, that sounds logical. I married an engineer. So now I've been here 11 years. It's a, it's a successful experiment. But so I was told in residency, remember, urologists are the Viagra masters. We went on board with that in 1997. Viagra came out. The United States government, I just saw this this week. The United States government spends $82 million a year on Viagra big business. Urologists are like the bosses of that. We love trying to make our penises hard. And I was told in residency that women are complicated. We'll never figure them out. I should do a fellowship so I don't have to deal with women. Women are difficult and they take too long. Those were all things that I heard in residency and we're the bosses of male sexuality. So how bladder cancer got me here. Back in my beginning days in Bellingham, I did big surgeries like cystectomies and nephrectomies. And uh, I don't do those anymore because I'm older and smarter. And I send them all to UW because I'm friends with the urologist down there now. But I had, so I had a patient, bad bladder cancer, took out her bladder. Point being, this is a patient I very much bonded with. Saw her every year, cancer-free, get to know her, get to know her husband. So this wasn't just some stranger who came in. And it was probably like five years after the bladder cancer diagnosis, she came in and she was crying in my office. This is probably about, again, I was seven years in training. It was like, oh my God, I'm going to see recurrent UTIs for the rest of my life. What the hell am I doing? Like the existential crisis, right? And then the universe is like, you want something different? Here you go, have her. Crying in my office, sexless marriage, pain with sex, low desire, didn't want any of it fantastic relationship, loved her husband. They were never going to get divorced, but very sad about her lack of sex life. And I'm literally like handing her a box of Kleenex. And like all those sayings from residency hit my brain at the same time. We don't know what to do. Women are complicated. The gynecologists are taking care of them, by the way, don't you know? It was like, is it true? Are those things actually true? Why don't I know how to help women with their sex lives? Because I, I had a box of Kleenex. It's all I had to help her with. And because of that moment, I like deep dove into everything I could about female sexuality. Read all the books. And I had this voice in my head being like, you got to talk. And so I, I'm like, fine voice. I'll start a podcast. So I started a podcast about it. The point being, I was, I was the same as everybody else. I was busy. I was a mom. Long-term heterosexual relationship, which sex was like, ugh, becoming a chore. Didn't have crazy, like feeling guilty that I, you know, was, am I having sex enough? How am I going to fit this? Like all the things that all the people go through, that was me. And I have to tell you, like through all of my learning and training on this now, I'm like, I have a great sex life. I never beat myself up over it. It's healthy. It'll ever change. And the point is, you guys can get there too. If you're feeling any sort of anything about your sex life, you can get there. And education is the way to get there. It's like normalizing sex. What is normal? 
is it okay to beat yourself up about this? What are we comparing ourselves to? What standards has society told us that we're, la- you know, we're not measuring up to? All the good things about sex education. And so I didn't like come out of the womb being a podcast expert. Like I literally got here because I had a patient change my life. So the, my whole goal for you guys is to stop shitting all over your sex life. So many people come in and they're like, it sh- I should have desire all the time. I should just, you know, want to have sex all the time. I, sh- I should just get an erection whenever I want to get an erection. I shouldn't have to use lube. All the, it's like literally shoulds and shoulds and shoulds all day, every day about sex life. So my big goal is just stop shitting on yourself about what you think sex life should be. Because we don't know. We did not get an adult sex education. We got a disease and pregnancy prevention plan. And I believe most med schools teach disease and pregnancy prevention plans. They don't actually teach healthy sexuality, adult sexuality, how to communicate about sexuality, all the things. Disclaimer, I'm not a sex therapist. They're very cool people. Like, they're awesome. But I'm not a sex therapist. I am a urologist. So I'm very good. I'm also very good at the anatomy parts and the hormone parts. But at the end of the day, I did not get a PhD in sex therapy. But they're cool people. So I don't know what's best for you specifically, right? I I don't know unless you type in the comment box what specific needs you have. But I do know that your sex ed was probably crappy. If you got a decent sex ed in med school, you were lucky and you were rare and good on you for med school. I went to the University of Minnesota, which actually was known is known as a pretty sex positive medical school. But most most med schools don't really cover it. They cover they cover like birth control pills, <laughs> and that's about it. Sex is super complex. Super complex, super fascinating. It's super interesting because it's it's all of society wrapped into your head on figure and your body and your hormones. It's awesome. And biopsychosocial. So biopsychosocial is this big complicated word for like, it's complicated. And I used to hate, I literally used to hate the term biopsychosocial. But that's what sex is. It's biopsychosocial. So my objective is, again, hopefully figuring out why you should care about sex, identifying your beliefs and biases around this topic. Right. So like what comes up if I ever say something that like jarring is like, oh, I have a belief or a bias. It's being challenged. It's, it's good to know. Identifying roles of stress and self-care on your sexuality and understanding that sexuality is a skill and it changes through our lives and what's going on with our lives. It's not a fixed asset. It's not like you either have it or you don't or you lost it. I need to get it. The Internet tells you it's basically like a product to be purchased and then you just like keep your desire in your pocket and you have it like that's not how sex works. And it can be approved upon if you wish. So the problem is nobody gets a good sex education. Shame and stigma abound and society will should all over your sex life. No one is coming and no one is coming to save you. Basically, my that's the subtitle of the talk. So welcome to the best sex ed that you never had. Here we go. What this talk is not. I'm not going to talk just about I'm happy to literally we've got time if you want to know there are Two meds for low desire in women, happy to talk about them, happy to talk about the role of hormones, all that stuff. But it, this is not specifically a talk about the medical treatment of sexual dysfunction, which is probably another CME event. <laughs> but happy to if you guys have questions about it to help you in your practice, but it's not. I'm not going to go through a lot of that. This is not me telling you what you should do. We're going to stop shitting all over your sex life. I'm not going to tell you how much sex you should have. That's shitting, and there's no there there right? So many people are like, how many? And I'm like, dude, that's like telling you to eat eight fruits and vegetables and like get 30 minutes of cardio and eight hours of sleep. Like if you make sex a bench check mark, it loses its enjoyment. And there's no right answer, you guys. There's no right answer on that. So I'm not going to tell you 
how to do it. I'm not going to tell you how frequently to do it. All the things. This is a page that I put up front that tells you all the benefits of orgasm. Read it if you want. Here's my opinion. Orgasms are good for us. So evolutionary-wise, our body, like, lots of good things happen when we have orgasm. Why? Probably because our bodies, to perpetuate the species, we got to do something that feels good, right? Release the dopamine, make us feel glad we did it, maybe we'll do it again and reproduce. But lots of data on benefits of orgasm. And what I don't like about this is it's very, to me, it's very shoddy. Like, oh, well, you should have orgasms because, like, it'll lower your stress. It, you should have orgasms because it'll decrease your period cramps. You should have orgasms because it'll help you sleep more. And so I'm always, like, very cautious of, like, I will tell you that orgasms are good for you because we have tons of data on it. But it's never to tell anybody they should have an orgasm. I think we get into very much, like, telling people what they should do. You lose the enjoyment of orgasm. If you're like, oh, I'm supposed to do it because people who orgasm live, live longer. Well, yes, it's true. We have male data in that. We do not have female data in that. I don't think it's because women don't live longer. I think it's because we just haven't studied longevity and orgasms in women. Um, but we do have it in men. But this gets into the like, how many Kegels should I do a day? Like, oh, you, sh you need to have orgasms. I think it's almost like a patriarchal thing to this, truthfully, of like, we just need to tell women that they need to have more sex with us because it's good for their bodies. And then maybe that's one way to have everybody have more sex. And so to me, I'm like, Know that orgasms are good for you. No, I will never should you to have more sex because you should. To me, it, it grinds on me. So what society tells us about sex? Well, I shouldn't talk about it because you might be dirty just talking about it, by the way. It's shameful. It's a stigmatized behavior. We literally don't talk about it at work. It's inappropriate. Your partners, there's something wrong with your partner if they don't want to have sex with you as much as you think they should. You should be partnered. You should be monogamous. You should not really want sex more than your partner wants to have sex with you. That one falls on gender roles, right? Like the, what's very interesting, if you look at heterosexual couples, if her desire is more than his, she's the problem. If her desire is less than his, she's the problem. She either has too high of a desire or too low of a desire. The female desire is always the one that's wrong because we base it on a male standard. Fascinating. Relationships that are not your standard heterosexual monogamous are deviant or pathologic. They are not. And then infidelity is rare. Sex addiction is rare. No, these are actually pretty darn common things. But not talking about them and believing they're rare makes it all the more painful when it happens, makes us feel all the more isolated, makes us feel all the more alone. So society does not help us out when it comes to us feeling good about what, what sexuality is. And if I ever say anything, let me just pull up. If I ever say anything that's like confusing or misleading or why did she say that or anything else, please just let me know. I'm happy to clarify. So in redefining sex, heteronormativity is the belief that the heterosexual is the default or the preferred or what's normal. And then we judge everybody else by our preferred like line in the sand. We also define heterosexual sex as spontaneous. All you have to do is watch a Hollywood movie. Desires always spontaneous. Orgasm happens right away. It happens with penetrative sex. And orgasm is usually like simultaneous. Heterosexual sex ends with male ejaculation. Somebody literally said, when lesbians have sex, how do you know when they're done? And you're like, if that doesn't define the heteronormative view of sexuality, have we ever thought like, why do we think that sex ends when the male ejaculates? It's kind of the weirdest thing. 
we tend to prioritize male pleasure over female. Like if she has an orgasm, that's a bonus, bonus Tuesday. But he had an orgasm and now sex is done. And then everybody works or functions. The male, and we do this in medicine too, right? The male body's the default and everybody else is judged based upon what our default is. This is not good even for the penis owners. This is not good. Like the heteronormative definition of sex is not good for anybody. And then people feel broken because they don't, they don't measure up. So journal time, if you'd like, what did society teach you about sex? Just jot it down of like, where did you come to up to today with your thoughts about sex? I was raised Catholic. So sex was within marriage. You had to wait till marriage. It was a very dirty thing. I learned in high school, like, I think it feels really good. How many people learn that sex feels good and people have sex because it feels good? We don't get that in our sex ed. So society tells us things. I had to discover, oh my gosh, this feels good. That wasn't part of my education. But I put this, I put this movie, Reality Bites was like the movie for me in the like formative years. And Ethan Hawke was like the hottest. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe you liked Ben Stiller's character better or Winona, you know, but I'm like in thinking about changing your body and your sexuality will change over time. What you find desirous will change over time. What you find attractive will change over time. I used to think Ethan Hawke in this movie was like the hottest thing. And now that I'm like older, I'm like, he smoked cigarettes. He was unemployed. He was kind of a dick. But at that time, I was like, that's super hot. But that was what society was like telling me. He was like the hottest thing. And then they had simultaneous like instant orgasm at that one sex scene, which was kind of hot. But um, society tells us, even though we don't talk about sex, we are told things about sex all the time. And all you have to do is consume our very over-sexualized media or any Hollywood movie, or even listen to all love songs, right? Like what are songs? What's country music? It's spontaneous desire day in and day out, day in and day out. And then we feel broken when we don't have spontaneous desire for sex. So Netter mostly got the anatomy correct. He didn't fully get it correct, but he mostly got it correct. We are pluripotent stem cells, right, Jennifer? All the same body parts. Clitoris is penis, penis is clitoris, right? Like it all kind of looks as if it's just kind of wrapped around a little bit. Fun fact, the female vestibule, which is the entrance to the vagina, hymenal ring. I literally showed this at a urology, not national meeting, but like, you know, the regional ones like a month ago. And a urologist is like, can you show me the G spot? And I'm like, it's not on this image, you guys. It's in the, that G spot's in the vagina. More on that later if you're interested. Please leave your, please leave your wishes in the comments. But so the vestibule equivalent is the male urethra. You can't see it because it's inside of the penis, right? Tons of androgen receptors here, very responsive to testosterone. Fun fact, if you ever take care of vulvas that have pain, vestibulodynia, is the equivalent of the vestibule is the male urethra. Clitoris is penis. Some people call it, depending upon how you want to view it, the penis is the, this is the male clitoris. So some people say, because if we say this is the female penis, we're being heteronormative again. But it's all same body parts rearranged in different ways. I literally was like four years ago old when a sex therapist held up a clitoral model and was like, this is a clitoris. And I'm like, I'm a surgeon. I put slings in the pelvis. Why has nobody told me I'm putting a sling around the clitoris? Why has nobody told me I'm putting a sling around the clitoris? And then you're like, the surgeons who operate in the pelvis didn't even get accurate anatomy education. Everybody has erectile tissue. 
We have erectile tissue in our nose also, by the way, which is why when you'll, you'll hear guys with Viagra be like, yeah, give me a stuffy nose because it's stimulating the erectile tissue in their nasal pharynx because we have erectile tissue in our nose too. Fun fact. But um, all bodies have erectile tissue. We must arouse the erectile tissue in order for things to feel good. Otherwise, your vagina might just think you're putting a tampon in. Like, I don't really, it doesn't really feel great when I put like this thing. It's like, did you arouse your erectile tissue? And they look at you like you have two heads. Like, yeah, because we never got taught that all bodies have erectile tissue. It's fascinating. We also all have prostates. If I haven't blown your mind yet, like, you're welcome. The female prostate, if we want to call it that, here's the urethra. This is the vaginal canal. Periurethral clitoral complex. Underneath, anterior vaginal wall is where this G, they call it a zone now because a spot sounds too small. I can't make this stuff up. And if you make an incision under there, that's where you're putting your sling, your mid-urethral sling, right? But you can actually cut into the prostate. This tissue stains for PSA. There has been described in the medical literature prostate cancer in a female body. Things I didn't learn in residency. Mind-blowing. We all have the same body parts, just rearranged in different configurations and with different variables of hormones. So all of this underneath the vulva is erectile tissue, needs to be stimulated. The tip of the clitoris is just the tip of the iceberg. Nearly the same size as the male penis, only a couple of centimeters shorter, just mostly internal. Very important for many reasons. But number one, when the woman is not having as good a sex as her male partner is, and then she doesn't want sex as much because it's not as good as he's having, very important, we did not get good anatomy. We don't know how to, we don't know how to function with female body parts, mostly. All genders don't. So they get the short staff. So going back to biopsychosocial, it's your hormones, it's your anatomy, it's your brain, it's all biology, it's social. What did society teach you about sex? What did your move? What movies did you watch in your formative years to make you think like Ethan Hawke was the guy worth desiring? And then psychological, our mental health, our emotional wellness, our stress, all of those things. So I hated saying biopsychosocial, but like the more and more I learned about sexuality, it's like it's not just testosterone, you guys, and it's not just Hollywood movies. It's everything together affects our sexuality, our interest in sex. And then, so me on the side in the red dress is me giving my TED talk like two months ago, basically saying sex is biopsychosocial. Like I've come a very long way to being like, I'm a surgeon. I'm like, can it just be like making a healthy clitoris? And then I realized, no, I can make your pelvis as healthy as ever. And you will have a crappy sex life because you haven't figured out that your pleasure is as important as your partner's and that sex is dirty and you don't know where your own clitoris is, all the things, right? So sexy health life is, involves all of the pieces. And I've totally, I was like the cynical make it simple surgeon. And now I'm like, I'm giving a TED talk about biopsychosocial because it truly is the bee's knees. When I was getting into this, like three years ago, I learned all the sex med stuff and was like, oh, but the biggest sex organs, your brain. And if you can't realize your thoughts about sex and what your stress level is doing and how your anxiety is poorly controlled and all the things, your body image, if you don't work on your biggest sex organ, it doesn't matter how good your pelvis is. It's not, you're not going to have an optimal sex life. So I, I've come around on biopsychosocial and now I'm like, it's all the things. It's why, that's why I can podcast for the rest of my life on this. It's so, so wonderful big chart. This is my one big chart of the of the presentation because we know how we hate people who do big charts. So that's why I put it in for you. This is looking at midwives working night shift. 
This is important for residents and fellows and all the night shift people because I think training a lot, I mean, unless things have changed, Jen, I think it's more night shift than lefts at this point. This looks at all, this is female midwives, all aspects of sexuality. This is our zero number of night shifts for, per month. Desire is almost is super high, arousal super high, lubrication's high, orgasm's high, her sexual satisfaction is high. The higher pain scales mean less pain in the female sexual dysfunction. So high, which means less pain. Overall score on the female sexual satisfaction function index, which is a marker of all these things, is normal at 32. Anything under 26 is deemed a female sexual dysfunction, basically. Number of night shifts per month. Let's go to just to one to three. You don't have to look at all the numbers, but down here, she's already down to 20. Four to six night shifts, she's down to 20, she's 24. Seven to nine, somehow she's adapted, she's up to 25. And then more than that is uh, 21. So any marker of night shifts per month in these midwives decrease their sexual dysfunction. So if you're beating yourself up because you don't feel like having sex, because you're working a lot, because you're training, and you've got weird work hours, it's not you. This is your body saying, something's amiss, and maybe seeking out sex is not, shouldn't be on the top of your priority. So biopsychosocial, right? Like our jobs are important. We want to have jobs. We want to be well-trained. But our jobs and how we always sleep affect our sexuality. And that's not you being a special unicorn. That's data-driven, and it makes sense biologically. So this one worked, looked at shift work sleep disorder. So basically shift work that's disrupting your sleep enough. And night shift work significantly impairing erectile function. So let's not just look at the vulva owners. Let's look at the penis owners. Does it hold up for all pelvises? And this has significant worsening of erectile dysfunction if you have shift work sleep disorder and night shifts. So... All people are affected by this. I think this is very important for our trainers because I think we beat ourselves up so much about we should be sexually active, we should have more sex, we should have more desire. When it's like the data says that this is profound implications on our health and uh, we should know about it. Mostly so we stop shooting on ourselves. That's the whole goal of this talk. We've got some night shift stuff, and then we threw COVID-19 on our sexuality. We, there's tons of data on COVID-19, looking at what it did to our sexuality. We basically stopped having sex a lot. We started drinking more also, which doesn't affect sexuality or affect sexuality quite a bit. But we started drinking more. We started having sex less. We started having partnered sex less. And then I hope we recover. Like, it'll be fun to do a study to be like, did we recover? Did we go back? But in, you know, you'll see like the sensational headline news of like sex at an all-time low, sperm counts are at an all-time low, all this stuff. And I think it's very dramatic, mostly to make people feel bad about how much sex they're having. But the data does support that we are actually having less sex. My thoughts on this, number one, COVID, we were afraid of touching other people, right? And if we weren't partnered or in a house with them, we certainly weren't often seeking that out. And then number two is in our society currently, we have a overabundance of dopamine sources. Think back even like a hundred years ago, like what felt good? A piece of fruit felt good and like sex felt good. Exercise maybe felt good. But now we have like concentrated sugar and Netflix, like me and Haagen-Dazs mint chip with my laptop. I'll do that over having sex a lot. Not everybody will, but like it expends no energy. You don't have to communicate with like either a vibrator or another partner. And like, it is cheap, cheap dopamine. 
And when we think of ourselves as like, just we're just dopamine whores, man. Like that's literally how we survive. It's like, we just want the dopamine. Sex is dopamine, but you have to work for that dopamine. And it's like, we have porn, super cheap dopamine, sugar, Netflix, social media, all of those things distract. It's, it's easier dopamine for us than intimacy. Intimacy can be harder, especially if we have any hangups from our biopsychosocial lack of education. So I see that a lot of like, you're going to compete with my haagen Like, it, be, it better be good, man. All right, what do we have next? So they did this equation, they, these sex researchers. This was a long time ago. And like all these sex therapists, all these people all the time, and they're like, what's the unifying basic theory between a, a happy partnership? And they came up with, I didn't cite my source here, but they came up basically with like sex in a relationship minus the number of fights you have equals a satisfied long-term relationship. They looked at married couples in this talk, but I think I think it can apply. Like if you're having more fights than healthy, happy, satisfying, you know, they probably teach you this in residency of like when you deliver bad news, put it in a poop sandwich, right? Like good poop sandwich, good. Put the poop sandwich in the middle. So like good compliments, good things. And then like the the one negative, that's fine because it's kind of covered up, right? And this is kind of it. If like if you don't have good interactions and you have more bad interactions, it's not so great. This is not to say you need to have sex to save your relationship, not at all. But what the data shows is if you have a good relationship and you add, if you had good sex, the good sex adds about like 10% to that relationship. They literally like Barry McCarthy, he's a sex therapist, came up with this. And he's like, if you have a relationship, but the sex is bad, it will detract from that relationship profoundly, unless both people are okay and happy with it, right? So I never want to be like, sex is not important. Like, it's an important thing. It's important for bonded individuals. It's important for people who want to be sexually active. And they've actually done research to be like, it's pretty actually good for relationships to have sex or if it's not there, it's actually pretty devastating to relationships. Now I've told you like orgasms are good, but we all have dysfunction because we stay up too late and the other dopamine things are cheap, cheaper and easier than having sex. Now I just said that like, but sex in a relationship is really good for the relationship if you want to be in a partnered sexual relationship. Not everybody wants to and certainly that we don't need to achieve that. But if that's our goal, it's good to know these things. So I was actually, I had a med student with me today from UW and she was with me in the OR yesterday and I was just asking her questions yesterday in the OR and she's a third year med student at UW and I was like, who has, of all partnered people, who has the least amount of orgasms? And she got it right. And I was like, I don't know what they're teaching you down in med school, but like, good on you. Heterosexual females have the least amount of orgasm of any partnered human. There's plenty of papers on this. But uh, the heterosexual male, if there are anybody who's interested, heterosexual male clocks in at the highest, high 90s, in the amount of times he'll have an orgasm. And to be specific, orgasm is not our only marker of pleasure. You can have pleasurable sex without orgasm, but people use it as a, as a marker of pleasure and satisfaction. Heterosexual male, followed by the homosexual men, followed by the homosexual females, same-sex females, followed by the heterosexual female. And it's not even close, man. Like heterosexual women, orgasm, equality, they're coming in around 60% of the time. Heterosexual female, she clocks in at best around 60% of the time in a partnered relationship. Hookup sex, specifically drunk, co-ed, college hookup sex, 
orgasm frequency for the female in that culture is about 7%. It's astonishingly low. So we're, we're setting up that sex might not be for her, that sex is for another human, that her pleasure is not equal, it doesn't matter. And then what we do on top of that is we beat her up for having low desire for sex. These people can't win. So orgasm inequality is real. Tons of research on it. It's, I think, a very important and fascinating thing to think about. But when society tells us that female orgasms are difficult, they might not always happen. If we, if we set the expectations that they're hard, we're just lucky if they happen, it's okay if they don't happen. If society sets that expectation for us, that's the life we end up leading. What's the main reason for orgasmic inequality? Well, it's just because women are complicated and we don't know enough about them, right? Like that's what I was told in residency when I gave all the people Viagra. So lack of anatomy knowledge. We put vaginas, we put penises in vaginas and wonder why women don't orgasm. Vaginas are not their organ of orgasm. It's the clitoris. It's like rubbing a scrotum and expecting the guy to have an orgasm. You're like, it's pretty close, but like I, it's not going to happen. And then society's belief that a woman's pleasure isn't as important or sex ends when a man ejaculates. Biological explanations have been discredited. She can orgasm as easy and as fast with proper stimulation. And she orgasms as easy and as fast when she masturbates. But you put a man in the room and her orgasms go down. It's fascinating. You put a penis in the room and her orgasms go down. It's fascinating. So when your sex model looks like the Kaplan model or the Masters and Johnson model, which is kind of how our, these were like the OGs of sex discovery in our, in our country. This might be something you learned in med school, right? The original map of this didn't even have desire. So Masters and Johnson didn't even put desire in their model. Because if you were lived in the 1950s and you thought it was okay for other people to watch you have sex and you were willing to travel to the Midwest in winter to be hooked up to wires for people to watch you have sex, desire was probably not, ev not even on the radar for you. Like you were already like, yeah, that sounds like a good experiment. Right? So they didn't even have desire for sex as part of it. They added desire in later, but they always put desire before sex. So, so many people, and this is all humans, not just vulva owners, I don't have desire for sex, so I'm not going to go have sex. And this is partly Freud's, Freud really messed it all up. Two big reasons. Number one, he said, he does, he kind of described libido as like an innate, natural, baseline human function which is not true. Our true desires are things that will kill us if we don't get them. Water, food, sleep. And the less we have those things, the more we actually desire them. That's how dopamine works, is seeking the reward. The less we have sex, the less we actually desire it because like, you know, we're kind of out of practice, it's difficult and, you know, I'm doing fine without sex. So like for a lot of people, the less they have it, the less they desire it, which is very different than an innate desire. The topic of desire is absolutely fascinating. But the belief is once we put desire as something that must happen before sex, now you don't have desire, so you don't have sex. It's not true. So how dopamine works, we think dopamine's released when we get the reward. Dopamine is actually released in the seeking of the reward. And that's kind of where that, ooh, let's have sex, right? For a great reward. If you're not having the good reward, if you're only having orgasms, 50-50 chance, your other partner's having way more fun than you. Are you having sex worth desiring? And as I was learning all of this and listening to the sex experts and going to the conferences, there's a lot of heterosexual men who kind of run, run this stuff. 
And they're talking about female low desire. And I'm interviewing one of them for my podcast. And I'm like, well, yeah, but like, what if she's not having sex worth desiring? And he's like, well, of course she's having sex worth desiring. Like you got to have sex worth desiring. Like they're assuming everybody's having great sex and just not wanting great sex. And I'm like, what if they're having melted ice cream, man? Like I love Haagen-Dazs mint chip, but not melted Haagen-Dazs mint chip. You can't make me like that stuff. And that's when it hit me of like, oh, people are assuming people are having great sex. We can't assume that. We got no sex education. We don't know how to communicate with each other. We stay silent even when it's miserable. So we have to have sex worth desiring in order to produce a desire. Number one, that's how dopamine works. The other thing, and I think I have this later on, but just real quick, is that when you look at the desire coming first, that's not how a lot of bodies work when it comes to sex. And I think I have a graph later on, so I'll show, I'll reiterate that. But a lot of bodies work by the desire for sex happens during or after sex. Like how many people have sex and then you're like, damn, that was so good. That was so fun. Can you remind me? Again, we should do this more. Remind me that this is good because I forget. Like, yeah, that's a lot of people's lived experiences. Our desire for sex happens after we had good sex. So, so many people like put their brakes on because they're like, I don't have spontaneous desire. And Hollywood says that you should before sex. And so do the sex birds. And so does country music. But this is not how it works for a lot of people. I really normalize this. I like to use food and exercise in describing sex a lot because it makes sense to people. If I waited around for spontaneous desire to eat vegetables and to exercise, like I would not look like, I would not be living the life I live right now. I go do the exercise and then I'm like, oh yeah, I really like exercise. I always forget. To throw in the thought for you guys, don't ever mislead me and say, go have sex that you don't want to have or go have sex and not having a good time. No, you got to prioritize pleasure. Make sure you're having good sex. But you can just decide like, I want sex in my life. I want to prioritize a sex life. I'm going to go do the sex. That's what we do with exercise. That's what we do with healthy food. Otherwise, we'd be just sitting on the couch eating Haagen-Dazs every single day because that's how our brain works. Our brain's like, give it to me cheap. Give it to me easy. I don't want to expend energy. And we're like, but that's not the life I want to live. The life I want to live includes exercise and healthy food. So I have to do those things even though I'm not spontaneously desiring doing those things. And I think a lot of people like tangent, but a lot of people don't exercise because they think they're waiting around for that spontaneous desire to happen. And if you talk to the elite athletes, they're not elite athletes because they have spontaneous desire to exercise. They're elite athletes because they're like, I'm prioritizing putting in all this work because this is the life I want to lead. And they like, I mean, they like doing it, but they're not sitting around being like, I'm a top performance athlete because of my spontaneous desire. Nobody says that. So Peggy Kleinplatz, her book's called Magnificent Sex. She basically was like, who's having magnificent sex? And some people are like, I'm having magnificent sex. And she's like, great, let's research those people. So she was basically like, hey, anybody out there having wonderful sex want to come talk? And people are like, yes, I'm having great sex. I would love to tell you about that. So she wrote a book on her research on like, what are the people who are having great sex doing? She says, so many people think they ought to feel sexual desire in the absence of sex worth wanting. We sit around beating ourselves up about having no desire, having mediocre sex, having sex for another person, having sex because we're people pleasers. So many people, and there's not a lot of data on this outside of college students. 
because I think we have a very heteronormative male-driven research on sex. But I'm like, we need to we need to learn more about this because there's pity sex is one word for it. There's a lot of different words for like, I'm having sex for another person, right? To keep that person happy. Typically uh, heterosexual, typically to keep the male person, but this it's not always that simple. I had a patient and her husband would give her like a little token every time she would have sex with them. And then she could save up her tokens for like a reward or a purse. And she's like, I don't desire sex. And I'm like, no shit. Tell me more how this is, this behavior is working out for everybody. So these sex birds, just like the premier athletes, they're prioritizing. They're just prioritizing having sex worth desiring. So here it is. Okay, I knew it was in here. Bassan, Rosemary Bassan came along. She's like, oh, this whole like desire linear model that the men all made is not most people's lived experience. You can have spontaneous desire. Or you can just decide to like go be in the mood and bite with yourself or with a partner. And oh, now I'm getting some arousal because of the erectile tissue that I have in my pelvis. Yeah, this feels good. Let's do a little more of this. Oh, yeah, I like sex. Sex is good. Okay. Rosemary Bassan said, women have sex not just because of spontaneous desire. They actually did her, this was like very early in my podcast. It was like a spoken word poem. There was a paper about the 237 different reasons that people had sex the very last time they had sex. So the researchers were like, the very last time you just had sex, tell us why. 237 different reasons. And we're all sitting around because we got crappy American sex ed saying like, well, you know, I should, I don't have spontaneous desire for this. It's like, no kidding you don't. You work night shifts. No kidding you don't. We just had COVID. Like, no kidding you don't. You have Haagen-Dazs mint chip ice cream in the freezer of like re really rethinking, like we have humans because of our amazing brains can have sex for 237 different reasons. One of those is spontaneous desire. So lots of different things can be motivation for all, all bodies to have sex, whether that's closeness, to maintain a bond, for stress reduction, to help me sleep because it feels good, because I wanted to get pregnant, because I wanted to see my partner naked, because I wanted to be naked. Right. Like if you go down, it's like reason after reason after reason after reason that people want to have sex. So it's like figuring out, figuring out our whys and figuring out our priorities. So more sex rules. Long-term relationships can decrease spontaneous desire. This is, if anybody knows who Esther Perel is, Esther Perel wrote Mating in Captivity. And then she wrote another one about infidelity. She's wildly successful. Basically, this is her entire career is like this one thing. And she's like, yes, my friends, we trade novelty and spontaneity when we crave stability and things that are known. That's just our brain. And then what's, so what's the definition of long-term relationship? When does spontaneous desire, and I'll air quotes long-term relationship, change to more responsive, receptive desire in a relationship? Long-term relationships by our, this is a brain definition. When does our brain decide you're not novel anymore and curious about you? Six to 12 months. So after about six to 12 months, you're, and I, I truly think this is why so many people are, I keep falling out of love. And I'm like, do you actually fall out of love every year? Or does your brain just habituate to the known and you lose that dopamine rush of curiosity, novelty, newness, all that stuff? Because we never got taught like, hey, just in case you wanted to know, your brain doesn't release dopamine anymore because you know like what this person's going to order at the restaurant, what pants they're going to be wearing, and probably what they want to talk to you about. And your brain's like, that's kind of dull. And you're like, yeah, I kind of want dull. 
Sometimes we kind of want dull. We like knowing they're going to be there when we show up that night, right? So Esther Perel will tell you it's this balance. It's creating. Once your brain already knows what's going on with this person, we have to create. And where we create is how we think about that person, how we treat that person, how we treat our relationship with that person. It's all within our control. I can decide every day to look at my husband in his jeans and be like, that's real nice. Love those jeans on you, baby. I love how you parent. I love watching you parent my kid. Like I can choose the desirous thoughts I want to have because the brain's like, it's just Dave. And I'm like, it's just Dave doesn't get us this intimate sexual life that we want to, both of us want to have. And that's part of communication, right? Is realizing like, do we want to have a long-term committed sexual relationship? This still working? Okay, let's work on that. It'll be good. Duty sex is not good for people wanting sex. I will talk a little bit more about duty sex in an amazing paper that came out looking at that. Cognitive distractions, stress, worrying about our patients, worrying about our pager going off, worrying about how we handled that nurse. Cognitive distractions, not great for bad sex. We'll talk a little bit more about mindfulness and the role of mindfulness, meditation on not just dealing with all of those things, but also just focusing on the present moment, being in our body, allowing our body to have pleasure right? We've got to shut off our frontal lobe because the frontal lobe literally inhibits orgasms. And then our body image, how we think about our body. Are we shooting all over our body, right? Well, I'll have better sex when I lose 10 pounds. I'll have better sex when I can keep the lights on. I'll have better sex because people who have better sex look like this. It's all our own creation of inhibiting our pleasure with our body, allowing ourselves to enjoy the body that we have, in the day that we're having it, and not always putting off that pleasure, putting off that enjoyment for a future date that may or may not ever come true. I have plenty of partners, both male and female, right? And they're like, yeah, since the kids came along, no desire, right? And again, we got sleepless nights. We've got stress. All the things biopsychosocial that totally throw a kink in our body being willing, open, relaxed, well-rested, all the things where you're like, oh, sex, what else is going on, right? So certainly just in my friends, it's like, I've got, you know, same-sex male couples, they've got kids now, and they're like, yeah, no, it's not, not happening. The big thing for the females who have the babies is breastfeeding, it's tons of prolactin, really low estrogen. So pain with sex, whether or not you had a vaginal delivery or a C-section, Pain is a big issue. We do have some data showing that, and again, this is shooting, but they told these group of women, they're like, just either masturbate to orgasm. They wanted a pelvic floor contraction. So they're like, masturbate to orgasm or have penetrative sex with the goal of orgasm. I mean, we want a pelvic floor contraction is, is basically what they were studying. And there is some data that when women start doing that, I think they started them like six weeks postpartum, they had way less pain one year afterwards. So they're like, there's something to blood flow and pelvic floor contraction that does help. So the good news is we're actually doing research. We mean they, I just, I just interview them and put them on my podcast. But like people are researching of like, is a pelvic floor contraction, is that protective? Do you heal better? Like they're actually looking at like, what can we tell women if they're interested and what we can do. I think the big thing, and again, I'm stereotyping, but I think the big thing for the not birthing partner is not understanding the body changes, the hormonal changes, and what we interpret, and I already started to allude to it, what we interpret, what we make things mean, 
right? How we think about our partner, what we make them mean. Her rejection of me, what I make that mean. Versus like, dude, she just had a pelvic trauma, right? Let alone any sort of prolactin hormone, super low estrogen that's going on. She's not sleeping. Her breasts are being used for a different job. They're usually a less sexual feeling when they're like doing a feeding work program now. Orgasm can be quite muted unless hormones, until hormones come back. Vaginal dryness, right? So on the part of the partner, not understanding the body changes and not understanding that like her not wanting to have sex is not a rejection, but we make it mean a rejection. So it's like, whatever's going on physiologically, then we communicate poorly about it and we make it mean something and we, then we make it all worse. 10% of women have never orgasmed by some data. And what the researchers believe is it's not because you have, your body's broken. They're going, they're going into our biopsychosocial, right? Most bodies can orgasm. Most bodies are built intrinsically able to orgasm. Put that on top of 10% of female pelvises have never orgasmed. It's not because their body's broken. Their body innately can orgasm in most cases. If society told you never to touch yourself, that this is shameful, you should only have sex with a partner. It's all the things. And by the way, the vagina is where things go, not the clitoris. So we don't even teach her. Think about your sex ed, right? Do you remember like the, the female images you were given? I was given uterus and ovaries in my sex ed, because it's a disease and pregnancy prevention plan. We're not even taught about the clitoris, let alone, you know, how many women think that they should have vaginal penetration and that's how they should have sex. That's the other thing that Freud did. So Freud said that clitoral orgasms are childish and vaginal orgasms are adult. So basically now you have to put a penis in, in Freud's world, a penis in your vagina to have the proper orgasm. So women are like, crap, what do I do? So what they did, the surgeons are like, don't worry, we'll help you out. Let's do a surgery in the 1800s to move your clitoris closer to your vagina so you can have adult orgasms. Legit. This is what Marie Bonaparte, who was like Napoleon Bonaparte's great-grandniece or something, had this surgery several times because she was friends with Freud and she wanted to have vaginal orgasms because those were the adult ones. So, I mean, Freud royally, he told us that desire was a natural, innate thing, and that he told us to move our, he didn't tell us to move our clitorises down. We tried to solve his problem by moving our clitorises down instead of being like, Freud, that's not how female bodies work. We need to pay attention to the clitoris. I saw two young females, heterosexual females, in one week. This is a while ago now. Two in one week for pain with sex. And you know how you get taught in medical school and residency, you don't say like, you know, are you taking your blood pressure meds, right? You don't say, are you taking your blood pressure meds? You say, what days do you skip your blood pressure meds? Because you're going to get a much more honest answer out of them. when you Like somebody taught me that in training and it changed my life. So I don't say, do you use lube? I say, what type of lube do you use? Because more normalizing that like all bodies should use lube. Penises are not self-lubricating. Clitorises are not self-lubricating. Expecting the vagina to lubricate all the orgasmic things is you're asking too much. And also there's something called arousal lubrication discordance or non-discordance where it's like, I can be totally wanting sex and dry. And I can be like super moist and not really be into sex. Like lubrication does not mean desire. Lubrication does not mean, we make it mean all these things because we don't get a good sex education. 
So two young, they're like 22 year olds. They came to me two, And I'm like, how do two 22 year old heterosexual females come to me in one week with pain with sex? Like, how do you skip all the people and get to surgeon? Was like my big question. And I'm like, what type of lube do you use? And they're like, my boyfriend told me that I'm not supposed to use lube. And, I, and that's when it hit me of like, oh, the younger generation isn't doing any better than we are, you guys. Like, you know, as much access as they have to lots of video, as another conversation, but porn's messing a lot of young people up because they think that's normal sex. We don't get the sex education to be like, that's a produced, edited, fictionalized world created to produce a ton of dopamine, right? And so like, you know, I'm at a university here and the wellness center tells me, they're like, yeah, all these penis owners, they're coming in feeling totally broken because basically their sex life isn't porn. So they think there's something wrong with them. I was like, you need to use lube. And furthermore, and so I've, this is what I started asking my patients. I'm like, this is a goofy question, but on a scale of one to 10, like how aroused is your pelvis before you put a penis or anything else in your vagina? And somebody, I had somebody this week, they're like, it's kind of like a three. And I'm like, yeah, that might be like where you are when you put a tampon in. Like, how does your pelvis know that that's sexy time, right? You got to warm it up. You got to give it some signals. You got to tell the brain, focus on now, right? That's where the role of arousal comes in, in helping out an orgasm. You just cold, put something in, the pelvis is like, this could be a tampon. I don't know. So arousal is incredibly important. And we got to arouse the, the main, and you know, you can get very nuanced very quickly and be like two to 3% of women have cervical orgasms, but by and large, the clitoris is the organ. Gynes don't know that. I just had a gyne. I was just in a Facebook group, a gyne. Somebody's like, should I save my cervix or should I get it removed with a hysterectomy? And a gynecologist said, the cervix is stupid and dumb and plays no role in sexual function. And I was like, I took like a very deep breath. And was like, actually, that's not true. And actually, we have a lot of women whose sex lives have been ruined because we didn't investigate, do they achieve orgasms via cervical stimulation, right? But when gynecologists don't get taught this, we end up causing harm because we don't think these body parts are involved. When surgeons don't get told they're putting slings around the arms of the clitoris, their minds get a little bit blown when they start learning about sex, the <laughs> seven years out of residency. Dr. Cassidy Friedas has a podcast and robust resources. Excellent for postpartum parents. Excellent. Oof, I love it. I think I get into this in a little bit, but I think this really applies to the postpartum situation is our lack of ability to communicate why we want sex. And a lot of people's need for sex to feel close, to feel connected, to feel loved. So one partner, this goes into like my very next slide. So one partner is like, all they want is sex. And they're already giving their all to this brand new baby, let alone if they have to go back to work. It's just another thing that somebody needs from them, right? It's a big stress and they want to kind of push it away and be like, they just want sex. I can't right now. I'm giving my all already to all these other people. And now this person who's a grown adult also wants something from me. This grown adult isn't able to say, I understand my closeness to you by the fact that we're sexually partnered. And when I don't have a sexual relationship with you, I feel alone, I feel unloved, and I feel rejected. Our inability to communicate our needs and our whys for sex causes immense pain because oftentimes it's not just about the sex. But when we don't get adult sex ed, we don't understand how to communicate about sex. 
right? So I think a lot of the, the I see that a lot with postpartum is kind of like rejection. And then I, I need this to feel close and I'm not getting that closeness. So many things about sex are not actually about sex, right? Like when you get it down to it, you're like, oh no, it's how I want to feel, right? Or how I need to show love or how I want to show love stuff. You're like, yeah, we just think it's about sex, but it's, it's not. We just use sex. I kind of had my mind blown when I was like realizing that you can be in a relationship with somebody and not understand why that person wants to have sex or what they get from sex. Like we don't communicate about it. And then I was like, oh, let me, let me figure this out for my relationship. And so I'm like, hey, husband, what sex mean to you? Like, why is it important to you? Why do you want it in our relationship? Like, what does it mean when blah, blah, blah? And he tells me his whole thing. And I'm like, oh, you can learn so much about people when you just ask them these questions. It's fascinating. And then you're like, that's not what sex means to me, for me. This is my view about it. This is what it. I think. This is what blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, that, my friends, is where intimacy is created. It's not this. We think it's the sex. It's in the talking about the sex and what we make it mean right? What we make the rejection mean, what we, what we make the, all the things mean. What do women, what do vulva owners in like, a, you know, two different pelvis relationship, what do we make their erectile dysfunction mean about us is huge. There's an interesting study going on in Canada looking at, because all these, all these penis owners come to us and they're like, I need the hard penis. I need Viagra. Oh, Viagra's not working now. I need, this is a very common condition, 40% by age 40, 50% by age 50. Like erectile dysfunction is a very common thing, but we don't talk about it. We don't normalize it. We don't normalize heterosexual sex with a soft penis, which is a thing. We just don't get educated on it. So they're doing this study. So like all these men are coming in trying to get harder penises. And now that I'm this expert, right? And they get me mistakenly in the clinic. And I'm like, what's your partner want? They're like, I didn't ask her. And I'm like, oh, so you came to a urologist stranger asking for your penis to get hard. And you don't know what your partner wants sexually, but you were hoping to have sex with them, but you haven't communicated. And they're like, no. Why don't you go ask her? Does she want to have sex with you? Right? She probably has untreated genital urinary syndrome of menopause since we undertreat women so much. She probably needs, like, who's taking care of the people that we're giving, who are sleeping, supposed to be sleeping with the people we're giving Viagra to, right? It was kind of my big question. We, we laughed. A woman, a wife, returned her partner's Viagra one day in clinic in urology, and we laughed. And now that I'm older, more mature, and more trauma-informed, I'm like, oh, nobody took care of the partner. He just came home with a super dick. And she's like, oh. And it's very interesting. You'll talk to urologists and you'll be like, what's the role of the urologist in even asking about the partner? Is it our business? And there's a, a published study that came out saying like, Viagra will disrupt a relationship because we're not talking about it. And then you're bringing super penis home. And we never asked the partner what they wanted. But this person comes home thinking they're going to have more sex now. And that partner just should like accept that. It's a fascinating topic. If you're partnered and you're hoping to use your super penis with your partner, you should have a conversation with that partner before you get the super penis. That's my opinion. So moving on. Desire mismatch is normal. Boom. We just changed all the relationships. So I really like Haagen-Dazs mint chip ice cream. My husband does not. I don't even know if he'll eat it occasionally. He loves, I don't know, beer, 
right? And I'm like, I don't really love it. But if he was like, you're broken because you don't like beer as much as me, you'd be like, it's crazy. Like people like beer in a different amount, right? But we're like, you don't want to have sex with me as much as I want to have sex with you. There's something wrong with you. And then all the doctors agree. And we're like, yeah, there's really something wrong there. Like we think that there's this perfectly normal, never changing level of desire and you should be perfectly matched with whatever sexual partner you're with at the time. And certainly just normalizing that two different people, two different bodies, different levels of desire at this point in time is completely normal. Stereotypically, this happens in all partner relationships, but stereotypically, two thirds of the time in a heterosexual relationship, the female has lower desire. One third of the time she has higher desire. Again, she's always wrong because we've just labeled her desire in contrast to what the normal is, right? We've called her high or low. So she's, all, she's the problem no matter what. The male partner brings his female partner in to see me in clinic and he's like, she doesn't want to have sex with me. And I look at him and I'm like, no shit. He just drug her into a doctor's office and said she has a problem. That's not sexy, right? So let's stop blaming the other person for their problem. So desire mismatch, totally normal. The more we're comfortable talking about it, the better we are. So here's this awesome paper. I read this paper, came out in 2022. I read it, I posted it on Instagram. Somebody from Instagram, a doctor, female doctor, was like, she's my neighbor. And I'm like, no shit. The first author of this paper is your neighbor. I'm like, can I have her on my podcast? And they're like, I'll ask her. So on my podcast, I literally read this paper for one, one episode. And the next episode, I interview the main author of this. Uh, Sari Van Anders is her name out of Canada. Canada supports sex researchers a lot more than America does. America actually loses a lot of sex researchers to Canada because Canada is a lot more pro like learning about how our bodies and brain, brains work. This paper came out. And this is literally like why I podcast is because people aren't reading random papers in random journals. Like it's not getting out. This is open source. It's free on the internet, but you're not like accidentally coming across this paper. And I had more responses from heterosexual women being like, yep, yep. Lived experience, lived experience, lived experience. And I'm like, nobody is talking about this. There's a specific thing that happens when you're partnered with a man, if you're a woman, that affects your sexual desire. It blew my mind. It blew everybody else's mind. I did two podcast episodes on it, but I got more people's feedback of like, whoa, it's not just me. I'm not just the problem. This is actually a thing. This paper will blow your freaking mind. So basically there's four hypotheses from this paper. I write, if you are on Instagram, go to my Instagram, go to my link tree. I have this paper linked in my link tree because it, I think it is so incredibly important. Inequitable division of labor in the household. Women have started working outside the household, but still have more work inside the household. Women have less free time. If you have less free time, you may have less interest in sex because your free time is more precious. You may want to be doing other things and not just sex with the less free time that you have. So that's one theory. Blurring of partner and mother roles. It's not that mothers aren't sexual. It's that your relationship with those you, you mother is not a sexual one. If you mother your partner, you're less likely to be sexually desirous of that person. The other thing that Sari Van Anders did, which is brilliant, which will turn like, you know, the very medicalized view of hormones, Hormones are created by our testicles, our ovaries, and our adrenal glands. That's what medical school will teach you. Sari Van Anders will measure your testosterone, give you sexual things to think or look at, 
and then measure your testosterone again. She's like, thinking sexual thoughts can change your testosterone levels. But you're like, well, you didn't learn that in med school, right? Um, she also does a lot of data on how cortisol affects our sexual response. Cortisol is fight or flight. Sex is rest and digest and procreate. So the more stressed we are, stressful jobs, thinking about patients, stressful events at work, the less open and relaxed and receptive we are. The good news to this, and I diverge from this paper, but I'll come back. The good news about this is we can, I hate the word hack, but the good news is once we accept that our body reacts to, we have a sympathetic event going on, are we parasympathetic? We can hack it, right? My husband knows that if I go do yoga after the kids go to sleep at night, I'm going to come back thinking like he looks pretty good and I'm pretty receptive for sex. Like I'm turning myself into a parasympathetic nervous system body. Get the stress out, relax, feel more accepting and open and understanding that. And understanding like, I don't want to have sex with you right now because I literally just came home, made dinner, put the kids to bed and now you're, you want something? It's not, it's not how bodies work. Theory number four, or three in the hypothesis is the objectification of women. We judge women by how desirous we think they are. Her worth is on how desirous she thinks she is. Big role in that, in her sexual desire. Importance on her perception of being sexual, being the person to be desired. We don't give her permission to desire, right? So we put her in this very passive acceptance role and then ignorance about body parts. If, if women don't know how their body works and do, don't know what makes them orgasm, and then we put a pelvis in the room that doesn't even have the same body parts and didn't get any better education. I always tell women this. I'm like, men didn't get any secret better sex ed than we did. We have to tell them what turns us on if we want them to try to turn us on. But we, we give them all that. Like, how often, is how common is it that we're like, he didn't give me an orgasm. My partner didn't give me an orgasm. Even the way we use the words says how passive we are in our own pleasure. And then gender norms surrounding sexual initiation. She doesn't often have time to realize what sexually turns her on because she's just responding to another person's needs or desires all the time. Like, what turns you on? I don't even know is the answer a lot of times, right? Because she's never been given permission to figure out what her own desires are. And then her inability to say no. And that's the duty sex, the sex to keep another person happy. The people pleasing. Right. And then she's like, yeah, I just don't desire sex. And I'm like, yeah, you're doing it to manipulate somebody's feelings. You're ag agreeing to that scenario. Right. This paper profoundly changes people's feelings of I'm beating myself up because I think I'm the problem with my sex life. And you're like, no, no, no. This is like society and gender roles and power and how we're taught to think about sex. It's like incredibly empowering. And so many people feel like I feel so seen. I feel so seen now that I've read this paper. So how to communicate about sex? Intimacy is created in communication. Don't tell people that it was just bad sex right after you have bad sex, like things to do. And then use I statements. When we don't have sex in a while, I feel like I'm not close to you and I feel that you don't care about our relationship. That's good information to share, right? Not like you never have sex with me. You never give me an orgasm. You statements are bad. And then prep for conversations ahead of time of like, you know, I learned a lot on this like 
residence talk I went to and like I started listening to these podcasts and I just like want to talk about our sex life sometime. Like, can we do that on Saturday when we go on a walk? Walking in parallel with people with uncomfortable conversations is awesome because you're not face to face and it's a lot less threatening. So like going on a walk and talking about it's actually pretty awesome. So two different theories on like accelerators and brakes is one way to think about this. And the other one is it in the tipping point people didn't like the accelerators and brakes because they're like, it's not all or nothing. It's actually a little um, containers. And we have containers that can make you excited for sex. And we have containers that make you not be thinking about sex right now. Me being in the ICU right now, standing in the ICU working, got lots of things that say not as not now, not the right time to have sex, right? I'm at work. It's not culturally appropriate. I've got my frontal lobe working, all the different things, right? But in thinking about an individual and to think about, and at some point to do the journal, to do the work, to be like, what is it that would just get me excited about sex? And to put it in there. Like, uh, I know that the kids are taken care of. I might even need to be in a hotel for a while. I need to actually like remove myself from my location for some people. A massage first might be nice. Yoga first might be nice. My partner talking to me in loving words might be, like you basically write down, like these are the things that would make me receptive or interested in pursuing sex. Then you write down all the things that inhibit that, right? Like a super full belly. I just ate, like just stuffed myself at the restaurant. Some people, that might be like a really big turn on for some people and like no way Jose for other people, right? So it's, this is not like, my kids learned, my kids are like in kindergarten and they came home one day and they're like, mom, don't yuck somebody's yum. And I'm like, they're teaching you that in kindergarten? That's awesome. That applies to sex of like, there are some people's yums that are other people's yucks. And really understanding that and understanding like if you don't know what your yucks or yums are, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to explore, right? And you can, there's multiple ways to explore that with a partner. But like not knowing what your yucks or yums are makes you kind of powerless in the like, I kind of want to have more sex in my life. What, what could I do about it? Is understand your brakes or accelerators or what your sexual tipping point is. And again, re reactive, receptive versus spontaneous. Come as you are is basically like the famous book on desire geared towards women, not necessarily heterosexual, but more geared towards women. She does the more like brakes and accelerators, right? So what's a break? What will put on the brakes for you where you're like, sex is a no tonight, fighting with my partner, right? Being super tired, whatever, a sick child. And so breaks and accelerators is more Emily Nagoski's. And then my podcast a lot talks about desire points. I put this, I put this big meal on the table because sometimes we think about sex like, no, I'm not super interested. I'm already kind of full. I'm already kind of tired. I'm kind of blah. But then you're like, but what if the dessert table comes out? And you're like, oh, the dessert table. Yeah. Even though I'm full, I think I'll have a little bit of dessert table. And sometimes thinking about sex like that is like, yeah, maybe no, not tonight. No, but oh, we're going to use like the oil-based lube with like the clitoral suction vibrator? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's have a dessert table, right? And just really figuring out like, is it a, a dessert night or is it like a no-go because like you're really full and you're really tired? Then it's a no-go. Think tools to think about when people are like, I want to incorporate sexuality into my life. Thinking of it more like food or exercise, I think sometimes helps. So desire, again, desires can be a feeling. It can be a thought. Desire can be a circumstance. Desire is wonderfully complex. Desire is dopamine. You must have a reward worth seeking out. I put this dude on here because I'm not sexually desirous of this guy at all. Like, I don't like much about him. But she's, like, super hot and heavy, right? So you're like, don't yuck somebody's yum. 
But like, you got to figure out what works for you. This guy does not do it for me at all. And so are we just talking about sex with desire, right? And, and when people talk, it's very woo, right? Doctors don't like this woo. But we talk about sensuality. What does sensuality mean? Sensuality means enjoying our bodies through our senses, right? So like, I'm just really, really good at, like this Topo Chico is like the only reason I love going to Costco. Is like, I, I love it. It's a little bit salty. The bubbles are bigger bubbles than like what LaCroix gives me, right? Like I can sensuality up the enjoyment of this Topo Chico. I love it. It's like truly being present in the present moment and enjoying what your body can be giving you. And that's what enjoying like the world centrally means of like sitting and really enjoying that music, sitting and really loving looking at nature, really in the present moment, loving that meal. That can all be sensual. And how many times do we not do that? Because we are these like, type A, focused, get to the end point, training and learning over everything. And we totally are detached from the enjoyment that we can get from our body. And sex is just one of those enjoyments that we can get from our body. Desiring life, desiring food, desiring all the things. But you ask people, you're like, what do you desire? What do you desire? You can journal it down if we have more time. What do you desire? And now look at that list. How many things on that list do you presently have? And have we forgotten to desire what we presently have? And in fact, isn't that all we really have right now is the things that we have? But so many times we're like, I want what I don't have. How well is that working out for you right now? Desiring what we do have. But it's a trippy practice to, to tell people to write down what they desire and then be like, how many of those things you actually have? Like the house you're in? Oh my God, I have a house. I'm not camping outside right now. I can totally desire my house because I have it. We just forget to, we forget to desire things that we have. So pro tips, working on why you want to have sex. I had this amazing sex therapist on my podcast and she's like, what feelings do you want from sex? And it's like, if only adult sex ed taught us this of like good sex for you means achieving that your top three-ish feelings of what you want from sex. And that's different for everybody. Do you even know what your feelings are that you want versus what your partner wants, right? I want to feel loved. I want to feel connection. And I want to feel pleasure, right? Another person might be like, I want to feel like a little bit of kind of uncomfortable pain. Um, I want to feel a little bit of like, I don't know what's going to happen next. And uh, I want to feel a little bit naughty. That's good sex for that person. And it comes down to what feelings do we want to have? Then you, so you reverse engineer it. And you're like, oh, great sex for me would be like held, desired, feeling warm. I don't like to be cold when I have sex, right? And then you're like, okay, so create those feelings for yourself. What would that look like? What, how do you want your partner to engage with those feelings? Of like, in a way of like, we don't get taught sex ed, you guys. So we just keep doing the same damn thing that we watched in the Reality Bites movie for like 30 years. And then we go to the doctor and we're like, I really like sex. And they're like, it must be a hormone problem. Here, take a, one of these new FDA-approved drugs for this. And it's like the complexity of learning about like desiring and feelings and creating what we actually want. So better sex through mindfulness works a lot on, and you know, I came into this via John Kabat-Zinn in residency and understanding mindfulness. He's big for the healthcare workers. But like, if you can't turn off your frontal lobe, you're gonna have trouble with orgasm because you literally have to make your frontal lobe not think about the past or the future so you can be in the present moment in your body. Your stress response must be acknowledged if you're in that fight or flight cortisol 
working on what you can do to hack that to be like, I need to go on a walk. I need to go do yoga. I need to go take a bath. This light switch, like we should just be wanting sex right now and that we can't change it. Like I can change it, but I'm not a light switch. I gotta work on some things. I gotta process my day. I gotta relax my body. I gotta get into a sexual being. Lube companies send me lube all the time now. And this one lube company's like, rub counterclockwise on the clitoris for 30 minutes after applying. And I'm like, yeah, no shit, that lube's gonna work, right? I'm like any lube's gonna work if you focus just on yourself and your clitoris for 30 minutes. So just gotta, you gotta prioritize that. Foreplay is everything and everything is foreplay, right? Well, how do we think about our partners when they're parenting? How do we think about our partners when they come home from night? How do we think about how we wish we could change our partners? And is that promoting our desire for them? And then limiting beliefs, like working on sex is hard, sex is dirty, sex is difficult. Women who want sex are, they're bad. We call them bad names, right? Really working on our limiting beliefs. And then these are really quick, just thing of like our kind of classic roles we play, right? In sex and being able to identify them of like, I just think that like good sex will just happen and it's not happening. So like, maybe I just don't like sex. Like, so there's passive approach, cortisol people, the perfectionists, right? I'm too jiggly right now, so I can't have good sex. I'll do it when the kids grow up and then avoidance. I'll move quickly. I got coached on, I literally went through coach training because of sex, you guys, because the brain's the biggest sex organ. And if you think there's not enough time for sex, you will not have enough time for sex. That's how it works. But I don't have enough time for all of it. But it's really focusing on what your currently limiting beliefs are into creating the life you want to live. And you can take, if, if sex is not where you want to be right now, that's fine. You can use this for exercise. I had a thought that I will work out and get fit when I retire. That was my thought that I discovered. And I was like, I don't know when I'm retiring. I'm just going to not be fit until like I finally retire someday. And I finally caught the thought and challenged the thought. Now I've been working out consistently for five years. But before then, my thought of I don't have enough time, I'll work out when I retire was my thought inhibiting me from making fitness a regular part of my life. So challenging your thoughts is very awesome. Journal time, mapping out your accelerators and breaks, and you can break it down into bio, psycho, and social if you want to. And then you have figured out your breaks. That's your map. The impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And so it's like body image. Okay, great. We have a chance to work on body image now. Relationship issues. Great. We have a chance to work on relationship issues. Figuring out our obstacles to a healthy sex life is actually our path to having the sex life that we want. When to outsource your sex life. If you have pain, that's the other thing. Our society tells women that it's going to be painful the first time. We literally set them up to expect pain with sex. It's absolutely madness. And a large majority of people who have pain with sex don't actually tell their partner about it. They just put up with it. So I, I see pain with sex every single day. So outsource that to a physician who can help, who uh, knows what a vulva is, ideally. Trauma, and then relationship issues. Meds and vibrators don't usually fix relationship issues very well. So that's outsourcing your sex life. Myths about human sexuality that we think are normal. We, I went over a lot of these, but just to dig up like, you know, where we come from with this talk. Spontaneous desire is the default. Moisture tells you if you're turned on or not. We should be light switches. We should match our partner's desire. We should be experts at this without any training. Don't you know? We should just all be experts. We are expected to be experts at sex with literally no training at it. Like it's, we've set ourselves up for failure. We should like certain types of sex. 
And uh, penis and vagina should do it for everybody. And it's our fault if it doesn't. So magnificent sex. So basically going back to Peggy Kleinplatz, interviewing all the experts, she's like, what do you guys do? And they're like, we will tell you. We communicate. We prioritize time for it. They have great body love and body acceptance. They are not inhibited by failure. They try. They try something. See how it works. They pivot. They try again. So they figure out good sex. They're able to center themselves. They have significant empathy towards themselves and others, and they foster trust, respect, and safety. Always having consensual sex because the other person wants to, not because they feel they have to to keep you happy. Very important. It's not good sex. So self-reflection. Would you want to have sex with you? I usually mean this in the like, are you being a jerk to your partner or are you being a jerk to yourself, right? Can we work on us loving a little bit more, trying to understand, loving our bodies? loving where we are in the present moment. Are you someone worth having sex with? I usually mean this of the person who brings the other person into the doctor saying they're the ones with the low desire, fix them. I'm usually like, nobody wants to sleep with you for doing that. Understanding we all have biases and limiting beliefs. We all got a sex education. It just wasn't accurate. And then working curiosity about sex in this topic gets you. If you always lead with curiosity in trying to figure something out, you usually get a lot farther. So I think sex is the final frontier of personal growth. That's what I've found because it challenges you to work on society's beliefs, challenges you to figure out your thoughts and your feelings, challenges you to communicate, and challenges you to accept what is and to try to improve something if that's what you want to do. So I truly think that everybody should be interested in uncovering their sex life because it's there's so much personal growth involved in becoming the person who has the sex life that you want. I think so many people are like, well, I want to have desire all the time, or I want to be having great sex. And I'm like, there's no there there, you guys. There isn't like, once training's done, you're going to have a great sex life. Once you find the right partner, you're going to have a great sex life. Once the kids are out of school and gone, you'll have a, there's no there there. It's really the person you become in navigating the challenges, which will inevitably come up that makes you the person who's very comfortable with their sex life, who's very happy, who's very satisfied. And like, if only to say like, I was that stereotypical person who was like shooting themselves, doing it for other people, not having enough time for it, like all the things, because I wasn't immune to all of society and learning all of this. Now I'm like, well, great sex life. Totally can communicate about it. We prioritize time for it. Not to ever tell you about my sex life, but to be like, I was just a person being a doctor, having the kids in the long-term relationship, having all the struggles. And I'm like, this stuff works. And I see it every day with my patients, right? They come back and I'm like, you guys having fun? They're like, we're having fun. And I'm like, good job. Don't forget to have fun. Takeaways, the skills to be good at sex are actually important in everyday life in the way we talk to our nurses and our spouses and our children and our feelings and our I statements instead of you statements. How do you feel? What's their actions make you feel? Not that they did it bad. It just makes you feel a certain way, communicating that. Sexual function is not fixed. This is not in your genetic code. It's biopsychosocial. And you're not broken. Take care of your teeth. That's the final talk. On the day one of my residency, my general surgery program director is like, don't neglect your teeth. So I'm like, at the end of the day, I wanted to tell you this, to be like, you don't, if you are too busy and too tired and you've got newborns and whatever, do not go try to have a better sex life right now. Get some rest. Take care of your body. First things first. And don't neglect your teeth because it gets very expensive if you neglect it for all of residency. Resources. I just want to point out the middle one. Your body is not an apology. This is a mind-blowing book. 
so many of us are like, we just need to get neutral with our body image. Like, let's stop hating ourselves. Let's get to neutral. Let's get to acceptance. And this woman's like, F that. Let's get to radical self-love on body image. I think it's a very powerful book. I loved it. Asect is to find a sex therapist if you need a sex therapist or your patients need it. There's not enough sex therapists. Even in Seattle, there's not enough sex therapists. And then the Sex and Psychology podcast is pretty cool, pretty science-y. Justin Lay Miller is a PhD and he works at the Kinsey Institute. So he's it's another kind of very evidence-based, science-based podcast, just in case you don't like listening to my podcast. I, I think this is another acceptable podcast. And take one action towards what you learned tonight. Hey friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com membership. I'll see you on the inside.